Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a superhero. Really? That's a nice feeling. And why? Well, I'm feeling like a gay superhero, which is how today's guest has been described by another friend and a creative mind, very talented Jonathan Anderson, actually titled our guest today as a gay superhero. And it got me thinking about that description because actually it's a perfect way to sum him up. He's, he's a multi-hyphenate kind of um, guy. Like he is an actor. He's a comic actor at times, but also now a serious actor, emotional actor, but also a screenwriter, a writer. Um, he has his own line of sunglasses, which I adore. He's even done collaborations with like SS Daily. He's a style icon, He's becoming a style icon, in my opinion. And also, he's slightly like a doppelganger for me, because every time I see something I like, the next day I see a photo on the internet of him wearing it. (laughs) He always gets there first. (laughs) And we seem to have very similar taste in clothes. And the way that he expresses himself, and also politics and kind of uh, bringing people together through what he wears, the kind of messaging on the red carpet at things like the Met Gala, but also just, you know, red carpets for his recent show, Good Grief, uh, which is now on Netflix, which is the most incredible incredible emotional movie and it was surprising to me on so many levels because I'd obviously seen Shit's Creek previously and I know that he started out as even as a TV presenter I mean that's another skill he did back in the day like right at the beginning on MTV in Canada so he's really talented and I also think he's really careful with his choices like he's very particular about the actors he works with like in Good Grief there's our friend Emma Corrin is in it and just amazing actors and we can talk about that in a minute and I just love his quality his kind of quality control and his very visionary way of writing current modern day stories but in a really fresh way so we would like to welcome to Talk Art Dan Levy Hi Dan boys how are we? Hi Good. Where are so you happy in the world? to be here. I've heard that opening so many times that it's surreal at this point to actually <laughs> be c- communicating with you. It's well, that's a real uh, privilege to us that you've been listening to Talk Art and know that opening so well. So welcome for a long time. Yeah, I used to put you on in the gym while I was making Shit's Creek, and it would, um, for some reason, it was like instead of music, I would put on this podcast. No oh my God. way. I remember that because I first met you at GQ Heroes. I remember back then you saying you were listening to Talk Art and I, was, I called Russ and was like, what? Like Dan Levy listens to yeah, Talk Art? The fact Art? that you were listening to it while you were writing Schick's Creek is just like amazing. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was, um, I had a really bad experience with like an intro to the art world. I sat beside a, like an art consultant at a dinner once who was so pretentious and condescending that for years I didn't even I didn't even like think about touching like art I didn't think about investing in it I didn't think about trying to find my way through it it was one of those things where I just thought okay this is and I know that it was kind of a it it was a one-off because then I started listening to the podcast thinking well I have interest in art and the art world but I don't, I never felt welcome by way of this person. I think through this podcast, it was, it like opened my eyes and opened my mind to the possibility of, of, of not, not doing it wrong, 
kind of, if that makes sense. Where was this dinner and what exactly did they say to you then? And why were you, so, how old a, were you at this point? It was like within the past 10 years and it was at a friend's house and it was just a very kind of, you know, it was like, well, what are, they were talking about like artists that I paid attention to. And, you know, when you don't know art, you only know kind of the sort of bigger names that, that everyone tends to know. And there was a real, I felt a real kind of judgment and like, well, of course you'd, of course you'd think that, or of course that's who you're going to. But the reality is I wouldn't expect someone who doesn't know anything about film to like know the nuance of independent cinema. <laughs> oh my God, no. Do you know I what remember, I mean? It, like- <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of this story. But me and my friends were sat, a couple of friends were not in the art world and they do feel intimidated by it. And we were sat, after some event and there was a woman there and she was sort of going, so who's everyone's favourite artist? And they were completely panicking or favourite artwork. They were completely panicking. They just went to the other one, just say the Mona Lisa. Just say the Mona Lisa because there's the only thing they could think of. When it went round, we were all being really kind of nuanced with what we liked and why. And they were like, Mona Lisa. And then she just sort of looked at them like, uh-huh, uh-huh. okay. And it was, but I understand that pressure just to be like, oh my God, oh my God, I've got to say something. But also that's so specific to location as well because it depends what country or city you're living in you know the the big blockbuster shows that have come through you know in your childhood all of these things like and not everyone has access to art or and you know it's horrible i hate that judgy kind of thing it just shuts down any interest which is essentially what sounds like happened happened to to you. you yeah and yet i think there are people that exist there are people that need to be defined by what they do in every industry and those are the people that that I think turn a lot of people off of from the industry you know the people that kind of aren't sure of themselves enough to be welcoming. So their power lies in knowing something that other people don't. And that I think is like a quality in a person that is like up there with with arrogance for me in terms of like just being a total turnoff. Did you grow up with art at all? Or because you're Canadian and you grew up in Toronto, you didn't have any art in the house? No. We had Did art in ever- the house, but my parents, I, I don't know if they... I think they they weren't sort of collectors. They bought, you know, art that they liked. In, in now I'm sort of throwing my parents under the bus. But I think they bought it like <laughs> at antique shops or like place. You know, I don't think they were buying. They weren't investing in art. They didn't. You know, I, I would go to the like art gallery of Ontario growing up and see the exhibits. And I knew about the Group of Seven. And what's the Group of Seven? Oh, the Group of Seven are uh, a collection of Canadian painters. I believe it was exclusively painting, but I could be wrong. It might be sculpture. Lauren Harris being one of them. But it was a, coll- a collective of painters in Canada who sort of had their own aesthetic, I want to say. I'm the last person that should be speaking to this, but it's a, a very famous collective of painters in Canada that really kind of created their own world of painting that reflected the Canadian identity and... They're incredibly valuable now. I mean, they're... Yeah, but also it was a landscape focus, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like landscape. They shared this vision for it. It's kind of a super famous movement, but it's it's not even that far back in history. It's like 1920s or something. Like it's, you know, it's recent history. Because I remember when I was in Canada, everyone used to talk about that. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, it's, it's like a very famous sort of... Um, the artists are very famous in Canada. And I think kind of Steve Martin collects a lot of the Group of Seven... He's a great collector. I went to Steve Martin's apartment once. I mean, this is just a name drop. And uh, a friend had been working, he'd had a show on Broadway called Meteor Showers and a friend producer knew him. And after the show, he went, do you want to go to Steve's apartment? And I was like, Steve who? And he said, Steve Martin. I was like, yeah. So we turned up and the elevator door opened. He was like, hello. I was like, hi. He said, come through. So we sort of went, oh my God, go to Steve's apartment. And then in the hallway was like these, I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There was like two Giorgio Mirandi paintings. And these paintings are worth two and a half million dollars upwards each. And his wife was there and I said to his wife, went, oh my God, these paintings by Giorgio Mirandi, these two paintings are amazing. She went, no, no, there's a third. If you just go around the corner, and I was just like, what the fuck? And then he walked around the corner, and there was like a Freud and a Bacon. And I was just like, what? And he's got the most incredible collection. And that's what he sort of invested all of his uh, time and attention into outside of writing and acting and playing the banjo. It's kind of wild to see them in people's homes. 
I had a, a friend whose grandparents um, were big, are, are big art collectors um, in Canada. And I remember, like, not really getting a heads up um, to exactly what, what I was walking into. But there were, like, soup cans in the bathroom. Like, there were three soup cans just by the toilet <laughs> in the... <laughs> In the rest, in like the guest bathroom of this, what like screen home. prints, Warhol screen prints, or actual suits? Yeah, prints. that they had commissioned, I guess, from wow. him. Wow! And then there were like eight more by the stairs, and then there were huge like Lichtensteins and and Rauschenbergs and huge Jasper Johns, like several oh. large Jasper. I think they're it, anyway. I remember just thinking. I have an IKEA poster pinned to my wall right now. Like, <laughs> this is next level. Well, what about now, though? So you you do collect. There's an artist that you sort of worked closely with when on on Good Grief that you've been collecting for over a decade now. Yeah, Chris Rocky, Knight. Rocky's just um, shouting in two seconds. Rocky, Rocky, let it go, mate. Life's good. Stop. Carry on. I um. So when I when the movie got greenlit, the, there's a large sort of element of the film. I mean, I, mean, I my character is a painter in the in the movie, and um, I knew that. That, that we had to get the paintings right in order to ground the film and not have it completely unravel at the end because, like, bad paintings at the end of this movie would would ruin it. <laughs> if we've been building up to see what your work's like and then so at the true. end it's, like, terrible, yeah. And also that's a thing, that there's loads of art films that have failed at the last hurdle and it's because of the art and the film's all about art and then they just have a set designer basically make yeah, exactly. the art and it looks awful. <laughs> okay, so... He was the first phone call I made. Uh, he and I sort of laid the film out for him and told him that it, you know, it ends on this gallery show and and it's it would be really important and I think it would actually be a really nice showcase for his work if if he was interested. And he said, "It's funny you you ask because a week prior I was having a conversation about Francesco Clemente's work in Great Expectations and." Had always Hulk, kind of had this desire to do that. And then here you are. And he, I mean, you know, we had to work out a contract, but he said, he said yes and was the first person signed on to the movie. And I no knew. Way, that's so clever. I knew once we had him that the end of the film would work, which was a huge relief. So this is a movie that you wrote and directed and starred in. Why did you, why did your character of Mark need to be an artist? What was it about the actual the artist's life that appealed to you when writing the character? I, I think in a way it was like I didn't want to make him a writer because that felt too on the nose. But I, it, it, I had a personal relationship to creating things and understood sort of how and why I make things. But I needed that level of separation between, you know, the character I was writing and myself. And so... In my head, I had always been thinking about Chris. I find his paintings to be oftentimes it's like you know it's 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 portraits. He's just I don't know. I've I've been very captivated by his work. I've been very moved by his work, and just thought that the a visual medium was something that needed to happen. I wanted to I wanted a, a kind of visual expression as opposed to in my case like writing something down. So it was always painting you know I, I was I, you know I thought about like sculpture but then you get into really even hairier territory in terms of like I don't know if I need to be with like clay you know like I'm ghost. like I have a lot yeah, of responsibilities yeah, yeah. as is in this movie like I don't <laughs> need to you don't need to see me you know at a pottery wheel Oh my we God. do. And also, we you're do. already doing a hell of a lot of stuff because you're like producing it, directing it, writing it, acting in it. You know, working with your fellow actors. But also, can you imagine having bad sculpture in the film? It would have like ruined the it, film again. Yeah. It's, <laughs> listen, you got it. Sometimes it's just you go the you know you go the safest path. Although he was there, like guiding me through. There's a there's a, a scene where I have to start sketching. Um, oh yeah. yes. And so he came. The projector, isn't it? Yes, yeah, toward the end of the movie, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was there and sort of walked me through. He set up the whole studio for us and walked me through how he would start his paintings and so that everything that I was doing was actually what he would have done. So it was important for me to really respect the art form. You know, I didn't ever want to 
take the fact that the character was a painter for granted. I really wanted to honor the the, the reality of it, um, and it was he played such a, a, a wonderful part, you know part of authenticating all of that. How did you come across him? Because he's Toronto-based, so he's a Canadian artist is where you're from, Canada. Yeah, I, I think I'd heard of him, like, in just being in Toronto. We had, like, I think some mutual friends. And I I want to say I went to one of his early shows, even. And um, I just love the aesthetic. I love the, play, the way that he plays with color. Um, and then he did a collaboration with Gucci, um, several years ago that was really great and and then I just started to look into once I once I had a job that paid me enough to actually like in, invest then I started to follow him a little more closely and figure out okay well you know I at the time I didn't even know how much his work cost so that was a, a hurdle you know First and foremost, I think there's also this incredibly intimidating element of of not knowing the value of the art world, too. And when you walk in, like, asking someone, well, how, how much is this? You know, the, 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 the truth is sometimes it can be affordable and sometimes you're left with a number that's so huge that you have to kind of, like, hmm, interesting. Um, I'm going to think about that one. Um, <laughs> I'm going to think about it, And get back yeah. to you. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, I had saved up some money and I, there were these two paintings that, that I had sort of been tracking. Um, he does these, it, they were, they were kind of the back of men's heads. Um, and, uh, and I tracked down the price and if I got a nice paycheck for my show and I bought both of them, um, and then bought a third, which was this kind of, um, illustration of a book, The Portrait of Dorian Gray, which I loved, mm. with kind of flowers all around it. And that was my first sort of investment, which felt great. And then they show up at your house, and that's a whole other thrill. Can I, can I ask how you then, how do you build a contract for an artist that's making paintings for a movie, and do you then own the paintings because they're all of the characters? Yeah. Were they wrap gifts for everyone? You do own everything. What, do, what does the artist... Because I've read that he had made between... So he made 15 to 17 paintings for the movie. So that was like a budget was carved out for a commission at his like primary pricing. Yeah. And I mean, Netflix technically owned the paintings, but they gave them to me, uh, which was very nice. And yeah, I'm trying to figure out what to do. I mean, there was, you know, there was... I was really pushing for to do a show that would promote the film um, oh, nice. where people could actually come and like tour the same kind of gallery space that you find at the end of the movie. And I think it was probably too ambitious for everyone over there in the, um, who were, I don't know, they had other plans for the movie. But so we you did... have about 20 Chris Knight paintings now in your collection. Yeah, we went from three to, um, <laughs> to a few more. But the, I mean, but the strange thing is, I think four of them are pic- portraits of myself. So, you know, it's not... And they're all above your bed. And all, I don't... Yeah. Talking about the portrait of Dorian Gray. Exactly. I'm giving some to my... I think I'm giving, like, the, the, the big one at the end of the movie to my parents. And, um, and a friend had asked for one of the smaller ones. But, um, yeah, it was... I'm trying to figure out what to do with them. And at the end of the premiere of the movie, we had them all on display. So as uh, everyone left the film, they were all there to see. So at least we got an, a, an element of that, of that kind of interaction because they're really yeah. kind of stunning up close. I'm sure Luke would like his one. I think Luke, yeah, Luke, I think we'll get his. There's a few of Luke's. There's a couple Luke paintings, always in repose, there's Always. some good ones, yeah. It's uh, I have to figure out how to. <laughs> and this is this is Luke Evans for everyone who hasn't seen the film yet. Luke uh, Evans, yeah. a Welsh actor, and he's also been a talk art guest before, so you can find out about his journey in the archive. Um, you know, Dan, one of the things I've always loved about you is the way you champion people's creativity, and just hearing that story then of you following that artist, like you've got this 
kind of ir- irrepressible curiosity and it's like you want to learn everything you can and I've seen it in the way that you look at fashion as well but also in the attention to detail about how you present yourself on the red carpet and even right now you're wearing a Joe Brainard um, drawing I on am. your t-shirt I think it's like a men's underwear from the 80s and he's Completely not by accident, the mind you, crisis. I would like now to say that it was a festive choice <laughs> <laughs> like a deliberate talk art teacher yeah, exactly. choice. Yeah, but um, and you've all, I just love the way you've almost become like this kind of, you sort of sing people's, you know, praises in terms of the way that you act in the world and the way that you present yourself. Like you're kind of always championing people, whether it be like Stefan Daly, who's a young, um, you know, emerging fashion designer, Stefan Cook, um, a young emerging fashion designer, S.S. Daly, or like Jonathan Anderson, J.W. Anderson, like Loewe. Can you talk a bit about your interest in sort of, art in clothes <laughs> I think I've always had it I I um I grew up without any access to to like fashion my parents aren't interested in it I you know I would get like one sweater and one pair of pants every school year to kind of like add to this pathetic collection of like basic sweaters and jeans that I had and I always had this fascination. I think I always had a curiosity and a preoccupation with like expressing myself through clothes, but never had access to it. And then when you have the means to buy it for yourself, it it kind of it, it exploded. Um, and my whole life now is almost a reaction to not having the ability to do that. So, um, you know, my a lot of my closest friends work in fashion. I've I've spent a lot of my like you know, from my 20s in and around people who are in the design process and have been able to, you know, understand, I guess, a little more about just how meaningful the process is, uh, which I think is is the great thing about any sort of, you know, creative field. It's like the more you know, the more you care. And um, I've just loved it. And I think I've all, I mean, the the, the interesting thing about Jonathan is that I remember buying, tracking down a pair of his shoes from his first J.W. Anderson collection, which was, I believe, in 2010? Mm-hmm. Something around wow. there. It sounds about right. It were yeah, these yeah. studded um, combat boots that he made way early on. And then when we got to know each other, I had brought it up to him, and he said, well, I think I've known your name because at that time, only, like, 10 of those boots sold, like sold. So I knew everyone's name. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I, I just, I, I love it. I love the way that, you know, getting dressed makes me feel. I love the, the idea of, of self-expression through clothing. Um, but you know what else it is for me? It's like in Shit's Creek. I know that's a bit of an obvious one, but your character in Shit's Creek had a big preoccupation with fashion and a big um, obsession with clothes, as did a lot of the other characters. And I remember talking to you about that and you said something like you were constantly on eBay or constantly on Vestiaire or all these kind of uh, resale websites trying to find the exact dress that might one of the characters like your mum might have worn in it or that you might have worn or and then that that became this whole kind of ongoing interest and then I noticed in well, Good it became Grief, an addiction that I now can't shake except now it's my an money and not a yeah. television show's money that's buying <laughs> the costumes but yeah I mean you know I think Shit's Creek was the first opportunity that I had to really access fashion that I had loved for many years but you know like I'm not right. buying you know Gesquier women's Balenciaga I, there's no need for me to have that. I'm not a collector like that. But it was nice when, you know, we had a character like Catherine's who was very fashion forward. And it was also really important for me to authenticate her character in real clothing. I didn't want to put like a Zara necklace around her neck that was fake diamonds and and call it a day. I wanted people who understood fashion to take something away from the show as well. I wanted that level of you know, depth and connection to happen. And it, it, it worked because people started paying attention and um, that was cool. It became a whole thing, didn't it? Yeah. And even the book you made, um, when I first met you in 2021, you released a book. And I think the book has incredible detailed images of all the clothes. and, and the But it's all like Rick Owens and Dries Van Noten and Helmut yeah. Lang. It's really like... Yeah, there was bougie. a Helmut Lang, like, um, mohawked hooded cashmere sweater 
that I had wanted ever since I'd, I, I think I saw Elijah Wood wearing it in like an editorial spread sometime in the early 2000s and had always wanted it and ended up tracking it down on eBay for the show. And I ended up wearing it in the field at the Amish farm. Um, yes. And the visual of it to me was was the thing. I knew how I wanted the shot to look. And I thought, okay, sunglasses, you know, horsehair, mohawk, cashmere sweater <laughs> in a field on an Amish farm is what this show is about. <laughs> like, and we did it. But also... But also, like, good grief, um, it got me thinking, because we'd had that conversation about Shit's Creek, when I was watching it, like, the clothing in that says so much about all the characters, and particularly yours, because, like, some of the jumpers, like, when you're first in Paris, and you're in the apartment, and you're wearing this, this like, soft knit, there was all these kind of references, and it really got me thinking about the psychology of an artist or a painter, and, like, how your character was then, you know, presenting themselves to the world, or feeling, and about textures, and um, all those kind of meticulous details that I think you're so fucking good at. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, costume design has always been like, to me, such an important way of revealing character without having to write bad, schlocky, expositional dialogue for the actors. There's so much you can say through the clothes. And so I've always had like a very close relationship with my costume designers because I don't want to have to write things that I don't have to write and I don't want actors to have to say things that they don't want to say when we can really try to build out their lives in ways all around them without them having to explicitly describe their sadness or, you know, their confusion or the feeling of needing to protect themselves from something. I mean, we we shift the, the way that we you know, the way that we present ourselves is often a reflection of how we feel. And, um, you know, when I want to feel a little bit, you know, when I'm in a bad place and I want to feel a little bit better about myself, I'll I'll dress up a little more. Um, and when I'm at my most comfortable around people, I'm, I'm, I'm more casual. These are the kinds of things that, that seem obvious. And yet, so often... Um, and I'm sure you can attest to this. You go into a wardrobe truck and you're like, is this, this is it? This is who I am? I, I had higher hopes for myself. So it's important. Costuming is, I think, such a, such a valuable way of describing a character without them having to, to describe themselves. Totally. There was a moment um, I want to talk about, Rob was talking about collaborating, Jonathan Anson, Loewe, and how you use your place in the world to you know show people artists you know people their their opportunity and what what you did was at the met gala in 2021 there was an incredible moment where you came out in this puff sleeved uh beautiful like um jellyfish that but with the work of david wonyarovich who is a massive art hero of mine he died in 1992 of aids at 37 years old and there's uh, an image a uh, very famous work by him called uh, Fuck You Faggot Fucker and it's two men kissing each other with like these um, atlas maps in the background showing about displacement of, you know, queers across the planet. And it, it was a really kind of groundbreaking moment for representation and for yourself and there were so many op-ed pieces. I mean, I mean, I was looking before talking to you today, I went to go back on it and there are literally hundreds and hundreds of articles of people's opinions on that, the reviews, how important it was. Some people are offended. Some people are saying, like, you know, full of praise. But what that represented was so brilliant. What was that like for you? And radical. And, and radical. Like it was radical. And how yeah. did that come about? Well, it was... Um, we had just come out of COVID or we're at the tail end of COVID, and I think our entire lives... Um, in in every sense of the in every sense of it, we're we're kind of th- thrown up into the air, and um, it was you know it was an incredibly kind of politically charged time, mm. and the theme at the, uh, that season was in America, and and I think Jonathan and I wanted to um say something about America, about the, you know, 
um, the voices that have existed in America that were often sidelined for for political reasons. And we thought it would be uh, an important contribution to the theme of, of the Met Gala to represent a voice uh, that needed uh, more attention. And so that kind of started the journey into what that what that would be talking about a, a part of America that that was both like you know talking about the artistic contribution but also about the way that that artist was treated and so Jonathan came to me with both of those works and said I want to st- I want this to to be our sort of foundation Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And from there, we, we kind of built out, uh, in his words, kind of like a superhero armor by way of that work, which was, you know, commissioned and he sought all the approvals and they made a, a great donation. Yeah, um, I, 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 saw, I saw that it was well. in, in association with the estate, but also PPOW Gallery, who show the work of David. Um, and right. also um, Loewe themselves and Jonathan gave a donation to Visual Aids, yes. which is such an amazing charity, which David himself, the artist, had actually supported in his lifetime. And yeah. it's just such a beautiful thing. But I also just think it shows the power of creativity, a bit like your film, actually, right now, Good Grief, to to make people feel things and to bring about change. Yeah, but also, you know, in the UK right now, we've got um, the post office scandal, which has been going on, and like the TV series is managing to like, you know, make all these innocent people be innocent and have all their um, convictions quashed. And I just think it shows you, you know, Russell T. Davis the other day wrote this beautiful text all about how, you know, TV, art, film, all of these things still matter and they need more funding. But also from that, so many people discovered the work of David Wojnarowicz. Yeah. So what you actually did was you achieved so much from that and that's so incredibly important. Um, totally. But also there was... Yeah, it, it yes. introduced a whole new generation so, so that worked. But to also, David's work. There was yeah. a clutch you had there that um, it, it was from a work by David Wojnarowicz called One Day This Kid and it's it's this amazing text and in the middle is a picture of David and he had a really tumultuous childhood and and growing up of that unlucky generation and you know succumbing to AIDS tragically but there's a photo of him as this innocent kind of buck-toothed kid in the middle and there's mm. this amazing text around it and I don't know if you'd be keen to read that text to us because I think it's really amazing and it'd be wonderful if you'd consider reading it. Yeah, I mean, I think that was also part of what, what made being there so special. Uh, to, to Like, to your point, it was, I think from our perspective, it was putting someone front and center, sparking conversation, sparking attention. Um, why not seize that opportunity? You know, what, what is what is the downside to that if not to... Um, show people an artist that had a lot to say and continues to have a lot to say. Um, and so they they put this work on a on kind of a clutch, which I thought was um, a very sort of s- subliminal thing. You know, it's like if you knew what it was, it's there. If you wanted to zoom in on the picture, it's there. Um, and yet it entered this big institution in a way that felt radical. You know, it mm-hmm. snuck itself in in a way that felt kind of mischievous and 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 significant. Yeah, um, subversive. 
Yeah, cool. exactly. So I'll try my best to read it. Um, yeah, and also people can look up the image on that thing called the internet. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've seen it at the Whitney Museum in, in New York, this work. It's been on display a few times, I think. It's such an iconic piece. Yeah, okay. One day this kid will get larger. One day this kid will come to know something that causes a sensation equivalent to the separation of the earth from its axis. One day this kid will reach a point where he senses a division that isn't mathematical. One day this kid will feel something stir in his heart and throat and mouth. One day this kid will find something in his mind and body and soul that makes him hungry. One day this kid will do something that causes men who wear the uniforms of priests and rabbis, men who inhabit certain stone buildings, to call for his death. One day politicians will enact legislation against this kid. One day families will give false information to their children, and each child will pass that information down generationally to their families, and that information will be designed to make existence intolerable for this kid. One day this kid will begin to experience all this activity in his environment, and that activity and information will compel him to commit suicide or submit to danger in hopes of being murdered or submit to silence and invisibility. One day this kid will talk. When he begins to talk, men who develop a fear of this kid will attempt to silence him with strangling, fists, prison, suffocation, rape, intimidation, drugging, ropes, guns, laws, menace, roving gangs, bottles, knives, religion, decapitation, and immolation by fire. Doctors will pronounce this kid curable, as if his brain were a virus. This kid will lose his constitutional rights against the government's invasion of his privacy. This kid will be faced with electroshock, drugs, and conditioning therapies in laboratories tended by psychologists and research scientists. He will be subject to loss of home, civil rights, jobs, and all conceivable freedoms. All this will begin to happen in one or two years when he discovers he desires to place his naked body on the naked body of another boy. Thanks for that, my God. It's just so fucking powerful, and it's so terrifying that he wrote that in the 80s, and here we are, you know, in 2024, and it's like that sort of situation is happening still. You know, yeah. that view, that opinion, it's just fucking wild. And do do you look at a lot of historical queer art and also contemporary queer artists? Because I know that Chris Knight, who you've amplified in the film, it looks through his work with a queer lens. Obviously, David Wojnarowicz was a queer man. Is that really important to you when you're looking at art now? I think so. I mean, I think... For me, it's just I have to have a kind of emotional attachment to it, and it's it's a it, I I think art is this amazing thing, especially if you if you want to kind of collect it. And I I'm sort of you know um, thanks to you guys often like feel um, excited to ex- to collect and and explore it has to reflect my life in some way. Like, it has to make me feel something. And yet at the same time, I think you kind of have to... It's an it's a vulnerable thing, too, because there's a... If you want to do it genuinely... And again, I think collection is something that... There's two prongs to it. There's, like, a business side to it, and then there's, a, like, a personal sort of desire to be surrounded by things that, that stir you. And I am more on that side than anything else. Um, but it's there's a vulnerability in saying, I like this. I don't know if other people like this. Like, <laughs> like there's something in me that makes me want to put this in my home and show it off. And that's a, a kind of extension of your own sense of self. And I, I don't know. There's this... this um, I think there's a vulnerability that has to exist in in the desire to to collect art, you know. Or, or does this make any sense? Yeah, it does. But do yeah, you find yeah. a vulnerability in a lot of queer art then, because you are seeing yourself reflected, and it is our lived experience that we're sort of yeah, like there was this. Um, Anne Carson is like a Canadian poet is almost not doing her enough justice, but 
I, I wrote her to to get to use a quote from from one of her her poems um, in the movie, and I, like speaking of art, she has a long form poem called Autobiography of Red, and that I think is one of the most influential pieces of art that I've ever come across. It's changed like it changed my whole life. I read it in one sitting. It's about 90 pages or something, and it is – it completely – I mean, aside from just the beauty of the words, it was the visual, like, storytelling, and it inspired me to to tell stories. It inspired me to go look at art. It inspired me to, you know, touch clothes. It inspired me to um, – it, it's just um, – I think it's one of the greatest, like, contributions to – you know, I don't even want to say, like, queer art because – it's it's everyone should read it, but it does have a queer slant to it. Um, she has sort of reinterpreted the myth of Her- uh, Heracles and Geryon as a as a kind of queer love story, and it will change. You your should life. read Song of Achilles well, by Madeline like Miller if you've not read that because so I think her. you'll love that. Then I will do that. Yeah, Madeline Miller, amazing. And there was this like Ellsworth Kelly lithograph that I had found myself kind of obsessed with. I'd seen this portrait that he did of his friend, and he used to, I guess, make these sort of pen and pencil little very sort of crude portraits of friends of his. And this one in particular, his friend David, who's just this, like, it was this beautiful face, really simply sort of done. I don't know what the... I don't know whether it was pencil or or pen, but I kind of fell in love with this man's face and saved up the money to buy the like lithograph of it because I just wanted I wanted it near me. <laughs> like I I like had this whole I go, I developed a crush on this on this like lithograph on this like portrait. Um, you know, I would kill to have the original, but you know. I'll, I'll settle with what I can afford. Um, but it was, um, it was amazing. I mean, and I think Chris, Chris's paintings do the same thing for me. There's like a, an attraction to, to some of the, I love portrait. And I think I, I collect a lot of like portraits because I, I don't know. I just, I love, I love people's faces. I love um, the way that people interpret people's faces i think painting a a person's face is like such an act of like love you have to kind of find something that you love in someone's face in order to want to draw it i suppose or or even sort of rage or anything but there has to be something in the in the subject that compels you to to put their face on on a canvas um so that one artist called paul p from Toronto as well, a Canadian artist, and he's sort of been, he goes in and out of attention and he's sort of been overlooked. He's represented by Maureen Paley Gallery here and he's in his mid-40s, based in Toronto, and he reimagines found erotic porn images pre-AIDS, so like from the 1970s, and he goes into Canadian lesbian and gay archives and he finds these anonymous boys, men, and then paints them. And I'm I'm surprised because I see a similarity with Chris Knight's work as well. Do you know Paul P? I don't, but I'm. Oh, you should look up Paul P. Yeah, now I have because to. I think yeah, you're gonna love it. They're, they're they're so exquisitely painted as well. They're in real life. They've got such an aura, and his co- color choices are really specific. He's got a real cult following, but I think yeah, he's, he's really like like Matthew Higgs. I think likes him in white columns in New York. He's really really you know, overlooked, like, but he's, he's amazing. An artist, artist, really, and actually, Maureen's had a lot of. Um, queer artists like that yeah. who who are kind of she's really just championed non-stop and obviously some of them like Wolfgang Tillmans have become really famous but she was showing all, all kinds of different voices yeah Fun I, fact. I, not, not even just figuration like um, abstract Patrick things. Carroll do you know Patrick Carroll no he's in, I, I know him yeah he's great and I I he had a show in LA uh last year I want to say and I I um I bought two of his his pieces he 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 sort of knits um, Jonathan did a collaboration with him as well, um, but he does these kind of. I can kind of show you the. But he does like. Oh yeah, I, I haven't. Do, yeah. I haven't framed it or put it up yet. But it's like, so it's these like words. 
That one says brought again to life, made once more, made once more to speak. Um, and is it it's stitched into a canvas? Yeah, like I have a small one. Hold on. It's like it's sort of like embroidery. Sorry, I'm packing to leave, but he like I have this one that I have to get framed, but it just says doubt. Oh, that's nice. Um, I love what he does. It's nice to have some success because now you can actually like buy art. Yeah. I know. Every time I do a job, I'm like, oh, I can, uh, I'm going to get a piece of art for this job. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> it's really nice. You kind of, yeah. Talking about art again in, in Good Grief. So, well, can I just give a, a fun fact about oh, Ellsworth Kelly before we move on? Yeah. He had a dog called Orange. That's it. Oh. That just comes to the top of my head. Did he? Carry on, Rob. <laughs> yeah. He called his oh, dog Orange. He had a dog. Well, my favorite paintings by him are Orange. So that's oh, wow. very handy. There we go. I had um, a dog named so Red. Talking. Did you? Did you? Mm-hmm. Redmond, but I'd call him Red. My movie's Aww. dedicated to him, funnily enough. Oh, good grief, yeah. My grandmother yeah. and my dog, Aww. yeah. They both sort of right. I did passed away when over did... the process of me making the movie. Oh, God, because yeah. Redmond's in your um, Vogue video, your 73 questions. He is. He's on the couch with you. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, mate. That's, that's Yeah, really he was the, you know, the like at the end of the, there's a little moment at the end of the movie where I look over and there's a like a dachshund sitting on the bus. Yes. That was my like nod to him because he was a Aww. like a dachshund corgi mix. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, so in Good Grief, there are many references to art. One is our mutual friend Emma Corrin, which is one of the funniest things ever because I know that Emma is obsessed with Marina Abramovich and performance art generally because they are just interested in that kind of thing. But how did that role come? to fruition obviously your best friends but but like actually that because it's quite it's like a a, fa- a failed performance artist in a way isn't it it's like kind of awkward yeah it's like a trust fund kid that was given yeah. a little too much money um but is trying you know it was i i think at the end of the day i never wanted it to feel mawkish i i, I wanted it to no. feel real and funnily enough my best friend trevor designed the the sort of tunic that they unravel over the course of the, you know, the performance. Um, so a lot of friends kind of came read. together to, to, to make that happen. But I knew that I want, you know, he was an artist and I wanted him to be confronted by an artist who was almost embracing it too much. Like, was put, you know, I'm retreating and they're going full force. Just trying extra hard. Yeah, just, it's like, you know, just slightly too much. Cringe, and then there's that desperation cringy, in yeah. their eyes, yeah. which is like... Trying to define themselves in person. some way by it yeah. all. And Emma was staying with me in, in um, Los Angeles while I was writing this movie. And this scene came up and I kind of ran downstairs and just asked them if they would play the, the character and... Um, and they said yes. So that's Emma has has kind of been involved in this in the creation of this movie for for from its like very early days. So it was nice to kind of um, have them make a little appearance there. But um, mm. even that whole process was so great to you know like commission a friend to who was a designer to make all of that, and you know that we had to figure out the logistics of how the the tunic would unravel and. Um, you know, it was fun. I know that when I first met you, we were talking about roles and this idea, because you and Russell have both been openly gay, and that's a terrible phrase, openly gay. Someone said we shouldn't use that Andrew anymore. Scott. Andrew Scott, yeah. Andrew Scott said we shouldn't use it anymore. But you've been, you know, out, gay. Out and proud. Out and proud and in public um, for a long time. And it's really interesting when you get that whole kind of Hollywood thing of getting roles and all that thing. And I know that you've obviously written these beautiful roles for queer characters within that film, but also for women, because I feel like Ruth's um, character is one of the best characterizations I've seen on screen in ages. Like just, and you know what it is? It's because you can really see that Ruth's character is getting in the way of herself, but she's not an awful person, but she kind of acts in quite a terrible way at times that was quite overbearing and quite like, mad in a way but it's just sad as well and it's kind of like you just want to hold that person and be like are you okay but by the end of it they've realized they've you know and you see this kindness of the character so i i I just was interested in about the way that you've written roles because you're obviously starring in it as well so you've written yourself a role and for luke and um that have multi-dimensional you know sort of so many different facets 
rather than being a cliche gay. I think well, it helped. I, I, I mean, I, I think it, it like a, it's like your chosen family. You had your family in Shit's Creek, and then with good grief, this is your chosen family we're now seeing. Nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, th- and that was what I wanted to do after the show ended. I wanted to write a story about how important friendship is. I think particularly to like queer people because oftentimes being who you are comes at the cost of your family. So, I mean, I feel very lucky that that wasn't the case for myself, but it is for so many people. And I think friendships um, mean that much more to, to queer people who have turned to friends, uh, you know, to, to become family. Um, and I hadn't seen it explored in movies. I hadn't seen friendship be at the center of the story. And I've certainly played the you know, gay best friend, you know, like in, in movies and I'm, I'm happy to do it when the part is right. Um, but I, I've, I've so often just had this desire to take all these friend characters that often get pushed to the sides and, and bring them back into the center and say, okay, but this is compelling storytelling. This is certainly for me, like, you know, my friendships are, are the great sort of loves of my life. Um, and they deserve a story and the complexities and the ups and downs and the mess of those friendships and, and how, how much more, you know, interesting and dimensional and complicated our, our friendships get the older we get and the more, you know, of our lives we've lived, the confrontations that we have to have in order to invest even further in our friendships, all of that I'd never really seen before. And so I was lucky enough to be able to tell the story. But yeah, I mean, you know, you write. I think as an actor, all I want is to to read a part that isn't flat. That is like, you know, the more the more the character doesn't know about themselves, the better. Yes. It gives you so much more to play. And yet oftentimes, particularly, I think, with like gay parts, you know, um, at least from my experience, it's like you read it and you go, mm, do they have like oh, okay. a home? Do they have a family? Do they have wants or needs outside of this cubicle that I'm sitting beside, like paying snarky <laughs> lines yeah. to like, it's it, who are these people? And mm. I don't think there's a lot of thought and care put into those characters because they're kind of comedic relief or they're, you know, they're a little bit of spice that gets thrown into a, you know, to the, to the storyline of a, of a, a sass. Yeah. And, exactly. and I just love writing flaws. I love writing, you know, what I know and what I love in my friends, which is not perfection. It is the complete opposite. That's why I love them. Um, and and so you it, it takes more time obviously to like sit down and say okay what is wrong with this person let's start there and then find what's right with them <laughs> you know um, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's beautiful it's beautiful the performances you get from Himesh Patel and Ruth Nego oh, and yeah, was... Luke Evans and yourself it's 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 everybody listening you have to go and watch Good Grief on Netflix it's also it's the wonderful. loyalty within the friendship group and also how it's your grief because you've lost you know, the one that you loved, but they're all going through their own shit as well. And while they want to be there for you, that, you know, and I love the way that then your character has to be there for them too. But then that's the thing about friendship is that it's this wonderful thing. And I, I just, I haven't really seen anything like it on TV. It also weirdly reminds me a bit of like Notting Hill and like there's a kind of romance to the, to the British. Oh, yeah. yeah, like that kind of feel to it that I think so specific to like, it's, and it's kind of a joyous thing. Like I'm staying in central London at the moment. I was looking out the window and I'm seeing the London that you see, mm. which I don't, you've kind of made me fall in love with the UK through your eyes as an American writer. It's really interesting and not in a cheesy way, in quite a, a sweet way. Like, you know, there's a kind of romance, almost like Mary Poppins or something. Not <laughs> Dan Levy Poppins, is good for tourism. So thank you, you very much. Yeah. Make- you don't want it to feel, I certainly didn't want it to feel like too on the nose. So it was important that it be grounded in some way, but there was a beauty. I think, you know, it was important that the aesthetic of the movie be that this character who's going through so much loss, like be surrounded by beauty. That's the tragedy of it. You know, it's like, what does it all mean if what you're feeling is, is, um, 
is is such pain. And yet it is, funnily enough, I mean, it's, it is art that actually turns the character around. And we had that scene in the L'Orangerie in, in Paris with the Monets um, that acted as this big kind of turning point for, for the character. And um, I mean, speaking of like a wonderful day at work, they shut down the, the Monets for us. And we spent an entire day in there by ourselves. And I, I mean, I think that it was, if it, it was a spiritual, it's a spiritual space. I think it, it is like the closest I've felt to like a religious space. And I've been in religious spaces. Um, it was anyone that has the opportunity to go, I would encourage you to go because the way the design of that space, the, the custom work and how it fits in that space, how you feel when you're there, looking around at people who are taking in that work, it's like incredibly moving. And, you know, when we went on the tech scout and we walked in and we were completely by ourselves, like a lot of our crew members started crying. That's how overwhelming it is. That's how overwhelming kind of the beauty of the work is. It's, it's very moving. Um, and he was losing his sight, wasn't he, when he painted it? Yeah. So, so it was all kind of, you know, the impression of the, yeah. of, a, of the the water lilies. It was, it's, And also Arnaud Valois, who's your um, co-actor in that, he's just so handsome and wonderful, but he's just gives such <laughs> yes, a great performance. Is. But he gives such a great mm. performance. I wrote him a note, actually, the other week, just because we've followed each other for years. And I just said, like, your did performance he is actually, you, like, outstanding. Did he wrote back oh, to me. Okay. We're friends through Alex at Gucci, oh, okay. ex-Gucci, yeah. Um, anyway... He's amazing as well, so big shout out to him. So we ask every guest three questions. Which you know, Dan. I do know. So the first is, if you could do an imaginary art heist, which is handy because we're talking about the Orangery in Paris, um, maybe it's a museum piece, I have no idea, but um, if you could take an artwork home, what would it be and why? It would be the water lilies. Oh. From that space. I mean, I'd be essentially like desecrating a sacred space, but <laughs> in, this full, in this world, I feel like that doesn't matter. And would you put and them in your like guest Netflix. toilet, like the... <laughs> yeah, I'd like hang them vertically. Um, <laughs> in a bathroom with a steamy shower. Yeah, exactly. I'd somehow have to build an entire new house to just house them. Um, you could just have the orangery. You could just live there. That would be your new, oh, your new apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, I'll just your Paris bolt hole. Squatters rights my way into, the, into that <laughs> space and force everybody out. What is your favourite colour? Blue. Because? And why blue? Because it's the colour of the sky and the water, and those are my two favourite things to look at. Oh, nice. And what is the best advice you've ever received in terms of your creativity or acting or writing? Or collecting art? Oh. You really have to check your ego in order to succeed creatively, I think. Explain that, extrapolate that a bit more. Well, because I think, I think our egos hold us back from exploring, like, truth in a way. And if we, you know, if we care too much about what people think or if we care too much about how we're going to look, then you're, in, you're standing in the way of your own sort of self-expression. So anytime I at least go to make something, it's always kind of, with with the idea that I'll be checking that the the ego at the door and I'll sit down to my you know computer and and start to write hopefully free of that um and then you save that for after and then you realize that people have to see it and people have to like you know criticize it and then the ego comes back into play but the process should should be as ego free as as possible um at least from my experience Amazing. Oh. Well, this has been incredible. Um, I, before we go, by the way, I love this little story about you buying an artwork um, in the pandemic online of um, a portrait of one of the characters in Schitt's Creek. So, yeah, someone yes, had mom. painted, had, had uploaded a painting, like uploaded a painting to Instagram of, of yes. Moira Rose. And She's I thought it was so... Anna Brindley. Yeah. Anna Brindley. And I asked her if I could buy it. And it's now in my living room. 
Oh, it's so sweet. It's a really sweet watercolour. And she it literally made her life because she was a massive fan of you, of you and the show and everything. And then one day she she stopped working or something and went to her Instagram and just saw it and was like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's a, I thought that was so sweet, that story. It's such a lovely one. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, listen, like she she went so far as to paint it I, I and put it out there. It's like, you know, you have to pay attention. Yeah, was it thousands that. and thousands of dollars? She charged me two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for it. <laughs> yeah. That's why you changed her life. Catherine yeah, exactly. O'Hara. Yeah, exactly. We, I mean, it's worth it. She's worth it. Well, thank you um, so much, Dan. Thank um, you so, it's so been much. amazing. Everybody, please check out Good Grief on Netflix. Margate has a sort of guest appearance in the film. Everyone, you know, wait for that moment because it made me very proud and confused. I know. Thanks to Emma Corrin. Who told me about it because I needed a, a, a coastal place where artists gather and Emma was like I've got a house we love you Dan and congratulations on this has been so great and thanks for helping to open my eyes epic. to art oh. boys I know I was going to ask you what snacks or what you what music you listen to when you're writing but now we know you listen to talk art <laughs> there you go there we go um we'll be back very soon thank you for listening and have a wonderful day in LA thanks Dan thank you very much bye bye, bye guys You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.